Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. And today I'm very pleased to say that we have Joe Maletti on the show. Joe is an associate professor of mathematics at Grinnell College, which happens to be um, my alma mater. And we'll be talking to Joe today about math and his new book, Modern Mathematical Logic, which is out from Cambridge University Press pretty soon, I think. So, Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, um, and then I went to college at Carnegie Mellon University. I was planning to be a, a computer scientist, and I went in as a computer science major. And over the course of my time there, I realized that math is awesome. And um, <laughs> uh, and to really understand computer science, you had to understand mathematics. Uh, so I slowly got swayed into that. Um, from there, I went to graduate school at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and got a PhD in mathematical logic. My specialty is in computability theory, which is sort of at the intersection of math and computer science. Um, after that, I had two postdocs from, at the University of Chicago for two years and then at Dartmouth. And from there, I came to Grinnell uh, in 2009 and have been here ever since. And what, what do you think about Grinnell? You should say it's a great place and you love teaching there. <laughs> yeah, that, that, those are both true. Uh, I love the fact that I am a five-minute walk door-to-door from my home office to my school office. Yeah, that is a, I that's like a the plus. Quiet. I like the, yeah, it's a good place to, to think uh, and to relax. Uh, city life is not for me. Yeah, it's not for me either, actually. Um, how is the math program at Grinnell now? Are you getting enough majors and things like this? Is it is it? Uh, we, okay? have, we have simultaneously an embarrassment of riches, and also it's terrifying because uh, there's just so many students uh, that our enrollments have gone up and up over the last 10 years, which is fantastic, but it becomes harder and harder. And uh, we're actually, the, the department um, is expanding recently because of these enrollment pressures. So uh, our majors are fantastic. Uh, they're going on and doing great things, uh, but there's a lot of them. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Uh, as I told you while we were chatting before the interview, I took calculus at Grinnell, and there I stopped. Um, so, but we can talk a little bit more about that later. Um, you are a mathematician, and you study a particular kind of math. Um, there are many different kinds of math. This is mathematical logic. Can you explain to the audience what mathematical logic is? Sure. Um, I should probably start by explaining what mathematics is, since, uh, as you mentioned, most people get up to or not even up to calculus. And so they have a very distorted view of what mathematics is about. So in high school and maybe in early college, you think of mathematics as manipulating formulas, um, which is unfortunate because mathematics is really about uh, defining things and reasoning about them. So, uh, I, for example, like uh, a thing that I've been seeing on the internet lately is a debate about how many holes a straw has. Um, and uh, there's lots of people with strong opinions. And uh, to a mathematician, it's like, well, uh, we have to define what a hole is. And that gets really complicated. Um, and mathematicians have developed elaborate schemes, uh, homotopy, homology, and all these other fancy words to understand how to measure how many holes an object has. And then you could ask, well, how many holes does a pair of pants have, which is a much more subtle question than a straw. Um, and so mathematicians, this is what they do. They, they define things and they reason about them and we reason about them using logic. Um, so um, what, and the, the objects that you reason about 
often define the area of mathematics. So number theory works with numbers, usually the usual counting numbers. Uh, analysis works with the real numbers. Um, but what math mathematical logic does is it tries to study mathematical reasoning itself uh, using the tools of mathematics. So um, a mathematical argument uh, is uh, a few basic moves you can do. So like, how do I argue that something is true of all numbers? This is a very difficult thing to do. We teach it to the 200 level. Uh, but eventually you sort of start to understand the basic moves of mathematics and how you reason about very abstract things. And over time, it got it sort of developed into uh, can we systematize this? Can we write down in a formal way what a mathematical statement is and what the permissible rules are? And once you do that, you've turned the subject of mathematics into something you can analyze using mathematics, which sounds very weird and circular, but that fundamentally is the basis of mathematical logic and where the whole subject starts. Mm -hmm. So if I could draw an analogy that might be helpful or it might not be, um, I work with words all the time and um, words uh, appear uh, as elements and then they are put in sentences. Those sentences have grammars and syntax and there are rules. As my mother, the English teacher would always say, there are rules for this. And you can have grammatical and ungrammatical sentences. Uh, similarly, if you put these sentences together, they can follow from one another logically or not. There are rules for that too. <laughs> yes, and that, that is that is very much the, a great analogy. And um, and this is sort of logic more generally tries to understand the rules of sort of human language, uh, whereas mathematical logic sort of restricts itself down to mathematical language. Um, and at first that might sound more complicated, but in fact it is way easier uh, because human language is incredibly complicated. Uh, you can write down sentences that are very subjective, that don't have true-false values. Um, you can um, say things that are incredibly vague or directly circular, that gets into very complex issues. Whereas a mathematical language is very simple. Um, we start with a few very primitive things and have incredibly strict rules about how to build up more complicated things. Yeah, this is a is very interesting to me because as somebody who works in natural language all the time, you know, a, a dictionary definition has a denotation and a connotation. Uh, this is an artificial distinction, <laughs> and these things can change mightily uh, depending on how the word is used, by whom where in a sentence, where in a set of propositions, and so on and so forth. I've been very interested in the use of the word uh, uh, disinformation or misinformation recently. And I'm like, how is that different than just something that's wrong? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess there's intent behind there. And then you go down a rabbit hole, which uh, takes your standard dictionary definition of disinformation or misinformation and adds a whole bunch of other sentences about what it might or might not be. And all that does is add ambiguity like tremendous amounts of ambiguity to what this word actually means in any given speech act. But you do away with that in mathematics by having, I guess, kind of primitives. Right. So, there, uh, yeah, so we have very primitive things and we all sort of agree on what things mean. So like lots of fields try to define concepts, uh, but 
I think everyone agrees that those definitions will evolve over time and then there'll be arguments about them and, you know, uh, then refinements. Whereas in mathematics, we define something and then we're done practically. I mean, sometimes the act of defining something takes a couple of decades and back and forth in mathematics. But once there's a definition, everyone agrees and we move on. And uh, mathematics is, uh, I think, fairly unique in uh, the academic disciplines in that once we establish something, um, there's, there's some counterexamples throughout history, but mostly once we establish something, everyone agrees that it is done and has been established. There's no longer arguments about it. Um, and so we don't have the same types of sort of revolutions or other things that happen in other areas due to different ways of viewing the subject or anything like that. And that all comes from the fact that we have basic primitives and we build up in a very logical way from there. Are the primitives limited in number? Is there a set of primitives or is that is that set growing? Uh, it gets complicated. Uh, there, there's not an easy answer to that you know, question. Like the principle of identity, one equals uh, one. That's a primitive, right? Yeah. Right. Well, so there's not, so the problem is there's not necessarily one foundation for mathematics. There's sort of competing things here um, from my perspective and from most practicing Mathematicians' perspectives, we take set theory, which has a very, like, basically one primitive, and everything else is uh, built up from that in a standard way. Other people prefer some other ways. In a lot of ways, it doesn't matter to basic practicing mathematics. They're all the same. Uh, so uh, there's a, a complicated discussion there. But the short answer is mathematics can be done with a, a very tiny set of primitives and built mm -hmm. up from there. And then you work with these primitives and put them together in various ways, and you uh, put them in... Um, sets of statements or propositions, and then you see what follows from the, those, and you just go on endlessly. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. There's a long philosophical debate as to whether this is an invented thing or a natural thing. Uh -huh. You see what I mean? An, yes. A, something, an artifact of the human mind or what philosophers call a natural kind. Uh-huh. Have any thoughts on that? Um, <laughs> Can we resolve that right now? I, I will not resolve that. Um, I, have, I have no strong, I, I think it's somewhere in the middle. And I, I know that that's unsatisfying. Like I, I tend to believe in a platonic world of mathematics, that there is a true world of mathematics out there, but I don't believe it's physically there in any sense. It's not part of our universe, which in some ways doesn't make sense. Uh, but I don't believe it's just a product of the human mind. I think uh, if we come across other beings in the universe, we will agree on what follows logically from other things. Um, and, and the basic rules of mathematics will be very much in agreement on. We might have different primitives, we might have different setups, but we'll agree on the fundamental statements. We'll both agree that there are infinitely many prime numbers and all sorts of other things. Um, so I don't believe it's just human, uh, but I don't really believe it's part of the physical world either. It's it's complicated. Yeah, it's funny. I remember a conversation I told, I've told you in correspondence that I used to hang out with math, mathematicians a lot, and they, they told me that there were an infinite number of prime numbers. And I said, is anybody looking? <laughs> <laughs> maybe it just ends at a certain point and they said no there's a proof for that <laughs> yeah and that, that's the amazing thing that it's very hard to um, get across to students uh, when they're first learning how to reason about mathematics is how can you argue something goes on forever uh, like for sure like completely logically absolutely sure that this can't or how can you argue that something is impossible yeah. Uh, we'll never find a rational number that when you square it you get the number two um, the square root of two is irrational how do we know did you check them all? Right. Well, no, yeah, we, that's was my question. Right. But, but we do have methods to do this that are completely logically sound and airtight. And um, it takes a while to get used to this way of thinking. But that, that is what mathematicians do all the time. Right. And, and these are called proofs. Right? Correct. That is yeah. the technical term for them, proofs. And there yeah. are lots of famous 
proofs in mathematics. Who was the first person? You may not know this to de- to to construct the proof that there are uh, an infinite number of prime numbers. So it usually is uh, cited as being uh, Euclid's proof, but it is almost certainly not Euclid. Uh, Euclid is just the person who put it all together and uh, wrote this, the, the elements, which sort of are the basis of you sort of Euclidean geometry and some number theory and so on. But uh, Euclid probably synthesized a lot of things that were happening uh, back then. And uh, so who, who the original person was, I don't know. And I, I presume that as a math major or a mathematician, you learn a lot of these famous proofs. Like absolutely. These, these, it's yes. sort of your textbook, like this is how they did it. Yes, absolutely. Although we do it, uh, the, the way that they did it was complicated in that uh, like we have so much more modern perspectives and notations on these things. So we don't teach Euclidean geometry how Euclid did it. We don't teach uh, number theory how Euclid did it because it, it's hard. It's really hard to follow what happened, you know, how they wrote things 2,500 years ago. Yeah, my, uh, my mathematician friends would talk about, and this seemed to be a stock phrase, powerful tools. Uh-huh. There's a powerful tool for that. What are yep. these tools? <laughs> oh, uh, so we, we have big theorems out there uh, that, you know, allow one to sort of reason about complicated things using simple techniques, but building up those simple techniques required, you know, decades or hundreds of years. So for example, I mentioned earlier, this straw example, how many holes a straw has, right? Homotopy groups are these objects that were developed over a long time. And there's these big theorems that have been proven about how they relate to each other. And if you take a straw and you glue another object into it, how do these objects, these homotopy groups, how do you compute them from this gluing process or what have you? Um, And so that requires a huge amount of time and effort. But once you have it, now you can answer basic questions like, okay, how do I compute this thing now? Um, So if you've, if for people who have taken through calculus, um, you learn about derivatives and integrals. They look completely different. Uh, they look really hard, both of them. But then you learn sort of the fundamental theorem of calculus, say, which says, hey, these are related. And you can solve this problem by doing this simple technique because we worked really hard and saw some key insight that allows us to connect these ideas. Yeah. Another word that they used when they were talking about the powerful tools, they said they were using the powerful tools to get a result. <laughs> that's a big word in mathematics result <laughs> right and that's a result is just another word for a theorem basically like a cool uh, like a, a new fact uh that uh, and and a result is uh, something that is the result of a proof uh so as, as you mentioned earlier mathematicians uh their currency is proofs that's what they do yeah. right and so these proofs are just building up over time a vast Absolutely. catalog of proofs yep has anybody ever written them down anywhere? Is there like the big phone book of mathematical proofs? Uh, and so this, is, this actually ties back into mathematical logic in some way in that uh, a mathematical proof is um, usually written in, you know, English or, you know, a human language, but typically English these days. Uh, and so we communicate um, not in huge you know, equations and symbols, but in paragraphs uh, that are convincing somebody of a certain statement following the basic logical rules. Um, but... Uh, we take a lot of shortcuts when we communicate with each other because we know how to fill in the gaps. And so a proof uh, as written in a a paper or a book um, is not broken down into its most primitive statements. And then like every rule is sort of articulated very, very carefully uh, because that would just be way too long. And and that's not how humans understand things. Uh, And so we write proofs uh, in papers. uh, And then over time, these get refined into simpler ways of thinking about it. And those get refined into books. Um, 
But mathematical logic then, you know, gives us the tools and the methods to, if we wanted to, turn those proofs into sort of the most basic forms so that everything sort of follow like these primitives. And then we can write every statement in this very specific way. And then we can follow each thing follow from the next. And nobody does that anymore. There was an attempt in uh, the early 1900s by Russell and Whitehead to sort of build up mathematics in this way. Um, And uh, it had some flaws and uh, it didn't get very deep because it's so hard to get very deep into mathematics doing this stuff. Uh, but they made it clear that it was possible. And these days, there's um, people doing what are called uh, automated theorem proving or automated proof checking, where you let a computer do it. So you can, uh, since you can take mathematics and break it down into these very sim- sy- syntactic formal things, and you know the rules, you can verify by a computer, is this, is this legit? This argument that a mathematician wrote in natural language, if we break it down, can we follow step by step and check every last step that it does really follow? Um, and there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and uh, you know, computers can't completely do mathematics without humans. Humans have to guide it and say, okay, I think this will follow shortly. Can you find like the little steps that will do it? And this is sort of a, a, a somewhat a growing area in sort of mathematics right now so that we can be absolutely even more sure than we are like like absolutely sure that this statement follows from these statements yeah this, this is interesting and by analogy again i was just editing a document using microsoft word and it has a grammar checker built into it mm-hmm. and the grammar checker essentially is the rules it's back there somewhere and it's using some sort of algorithm to check every instance i don't know what else to call it against the rules what's surprising is how often it's not quite right. <laughs> exactly. And that, and, that, and that goes back to our earlier discussion of natural language is so much harder yeah. than mathematical language. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there are these grammar checkers now for proofs. Yep. Yep, pretty much. Uh, yeah, except like it, it's better than grammar checking in that it's not like, okay, this is a well-constructed thing, but it, it, but it actually like follows from these exact rules from these previous things. So you can write down well-constructed mathematical statements that are false. Yeah. Right? Uh, but so so the, it's, it's similar, but yeah, uh, there, there are some differences there. Yeah. It is some of what you do simplification, because I know when I edit, I, I used to be an editor of a journal and I would edit people and they say, there's too many words here that don't really matter. And there's a bunch of extraneous stuff. Let's get to the point. So is some of what you're talking about simplification, get the simplest possible um, instance of a true statement or a theorem. Um, and simplification is a big part of math. I mean, you learn to do this in high school. Yeah. So in some ways I'd say, um, most of mathematical logic these days actually doesn't care about actually doing this. Um, they care about that it's theoretically possible to do this and don't actually, like my papers are not written in this way, in this very formal way. Um, and to me, what makes something simple in mathematics is not that it is formal and written out in this way, it's that it is easily and insightfully understood by a human, which is very different, right? So like mathematical logic is a branch of mathematics. Uh, and we, we, are, we, we argue just like other mathematicians do using sort of informal natural language. We write our proofs informally. We just know that they can be translated into this very formal system. And the fact that that is possible has a lot of very deep consequences. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, I was going to say, you know, uh, w- one of the tools you use to explain something in natural language is the analogy. Yeah. It's extraordinarily useful in helping people understand something they're unfamiliar with. 
Are there analogies? Are analogies used in in math? So it's unfortunate that um, the way people see mathematics in books or in papers is uh, it seems like there are none. Like most papers are definition theorem proof. Uh, uh, and there are no sort of, hey, here's how to think about this. Hey, here's the analogy. But when mathematicians are working and, you know, uh, doing their research, they think in analogies and talk to each other in analogies all the time. That is the only way to make progress is to say this feels like this kind of argument uh, or this feels like it might be true because of this. And we draw terrible pictures and we, we have we don't think in this incredibly detailed, formal way when we're trying to figure new things out. We like think in analogies and stuff like that. So that is a deep part of mathematics. Uh, and uh, the thing that's hard about it is at the undergraduate level, there's a reason, one reason why we don't do it so much is because you have to sort of understand the language and the formalities before you can like test this. So one thing that's tricky about mathematics compared to a lot of the other sciences is in the sciences, natural sciences, you might have some intuition, you might have a guess, and then you could check it by doing an experiment. And in mathematics, we don't have the natural world to experiment against. Right. So how do we check that our intuitions and our analogies hold up, that there's something there, that it's not a figment of our imagination? Well, we have to have a method to like determine, is this OK? And our method is proof. Uh, and that, that is the analog of experiments in the sciences or something like that. And so we have to build up that tool set before you can sort of think very intuitively and analogously and so on. We have to have this the system that you can check your, your, your intuition through a proof. Uh, so it is a huge part of mathematics, but it's not until the very upper undergraduate level that I think we really emphasize that. Yeah. And we talked about this in the pre-interview. Uh, they, they make you take calculus and calculus is a killer. Yeah. <laughs> calculus. <laughs> it, calculus ruined my, is... it, ru- it ruined my appreciation of mathematics. <laughs> yeah. Calculus has issues uh, such as like, it builds on a huge amount of high school mathematics, uh, algebra and trigonometry. The logical structure of calculus is really hard, actually. It, um, it took 200 years for people to come to grips with how to do all of this logically and break it down into primitives and understand how it all builds up. Uh, fascinating history. Uh, and we uh, teach it to incoming students and it's very hard because we can't pull out all this logical material um, and we build on all this past stuff, which has a lot of sort of students come with all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, but it is important in the sciences and that's why it is yeah, it's, first. it's yep. fundamental for yeah the science, yes. especially engineering and things like this. You Absolutely. can't do without it, you know, and yep. in that way it kind of stands in the same place as statistics that is both descriptive and uh, correlational. You, you really have to have it. Um, it's not fun, but you have to have it. <laughs> yeah, because it's extraordinarily useful. I was interested that you used the word intuition, and I'm reminded of, um, this follows on our conversation about analogies. I actually sat with these mathematicians quite a bit. This was at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, and and I, I watched them talking to one another, and it was precisely what you said. They were saying, this, this feels like this. This feels like this other thing over here. And, and and they really used language like this. And, and this sort of disabused me of the idea that all mathematics was this strictly algorithmic process with a right answer. Probability is all over it <laughs> in, in, at that level. Like, maybe this is like that. And, and one of the things they would often do, and this often gets back to your point about having to have a certain amount of knowledge in order to be able to do it, is that um, 
at the Institute, there were these uh, wise older mathematicians. The one that comes to mind is Pierre Deligne. You know who Pierre Deligne is? Yes, he's very famous, wise old. And they would say, we should go talk to Pierre Deligne. He'll tell us whether our intuitions are whacked out or not, because he knows everything. <laughs> yeah, and this is another weird thing, and it's, it's an unfortunate thing about mathematics in terms of uh, worldwide development of mathematics, is it's actually incredibly hard to learn mathematics by reading the research literature, because it is so streamlined, and it's just what you need to know. And so, math, like you learn mathematics as a graduate student, you do read papers, and you do read books, but fundamentally, a huge amount of how you develop is talking to your advisor, and your advisor will be like, yeah, this is how the proof goes, but this is how you think about it, right? This is how you remember it. This is the through line between, yeah, these five theorems look very different, but there's this one key idea. Like, if you understand this, like, you'll figure the rest out. And again, we don't write that way in research papers, which is really unfortunate, but um, it, you have to have that sort of human, uh, like, tell me what's really going on here. Like, I know you don't have to, like, I think mathematicians have a, an allergy to writing things that aren't quite exactly true, like, down, but in conversation, they're fine. It's, they don't want to be caught, right? Like saying something that's not a hundred percent true. But you know, talking to each other, you you get the you, you can like fudge things. You can say morally, this is a, a phrase mathematicians use a lot. This is morally true, which means it's not really true, but this is how you should think about it, right? Yeah, right. And, right. and only through those sort of human discussions do you develop this and understand this. And so that makes it very hard for people who don't aren't near centers of mathematical activity to come up to speed on what's happening in mathematics. Well, that's another thing that we talked about earlier, and that is that mathematics is incredibly, um, what is collaborative? Yes. Like you always work with other people. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, it didn't used to be that. I mean, it used to be that way in that people would write letters to each other and so on. But uh, back in the, you know, 60 years ago, most mathematical papers were written by one author. And these days, that is, is uncommon to have one author papers. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And so they would go to Pierre Deligne, not looking for the answer, but seeing whether they were going in the right direction. That, it was really to ward off any waste of effort. Yeah. And um, I've had a lot of discussions with mathematicians where, you know, they'll, they'll be like, yeah, I'm skeptical this will work because of blah, blah, blah. And that, that, they're, not, they're not always right. Uh, but that it's an insight and it, it helps you sort of like trim the, the, the tree of possibilities. Be like, oh, yep, that's, a, that's, what, that's, a, that's a great analogy. Yeah, trim the I've, tree of possibilities. I've got, I, sh I should focus on this thing because of that insight. Right. Yeah. 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 That's exactly right. And you can see how really probabilistic judgments, again, this gets us away from this notion that mathematics is all this strictly algorithmic process where, you know, like long division, you just do this, 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 this again until you get the right answer. It's mm -hmm. not like that. It is not like that at all. <laughs> not at all. But see, that's what calculus does to people. It kills them. Yes. <laughs> and the, they, it, 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 yes, it kills them. It makes them think that it is like that. Yes. But it's not like that. Because there's lots of places where you say this might be true, yep. but it might not. <laughs> yeah, and this actually comes back into a really interesting part of mathematical logic and the, and the history here. So um, there was a long effort in mathematics to sort of systematize mathematical reasoning, to turn it into something symbolic that you can totally understand the rules of. But this became a very big deal in the beginning of the, the 1900s. There was sort of a crisis in mathematics at the time. Uh, people were introducing new methods. So there's um, Cantor introduced this way of thinking about infinite sets and comparing the sizes of infinite sets um, and some things that a lot of mathematicians got very queasy about. 
Um, and then some mathematicians were using these new methods to prove new theorems. And some mathematicians got, were like, well, that's not allowed. Like that technique is not okay. This, this, this basic axiom is not okay. Uh, and there was a, a battle that was happening at the beginning of the 20th century as to like, what do we allow? Uh, and a mathematician named David Hilbert sort of, uh, yeah, David was, Hilbert. Yeah, I know who he, he was is. at the yeah. forefront of using these new methods and was pushing them very hard. And, uh, uh, he wanted to sort of, um, win this battle and the way he proposed <laughs> to win to win this battle was not just to convince other mathematicians but he was going to use the skeptics arguments against them and so he was he wanted to systematize mathematics write it in this very formal way and then he wanted to argue using the methods of his of his uh sort of enemies that if we use these more complicated methods we're not going to get into trouble so since you can systematize mathematics and write it very, very formally you've turned those things into mathematical objects and then he wanted to prove using math the mathematics that they were using that these complicated methods would not lead to a contradiction, would not destroy mathematics. So he wanted to like win using their tools. Uh, and so this is sort of the origins of mathematical logic in the 20th century. Did he do it? Uh, so <laughs> no. <laughs> he, uh, so, like, so he wanted to do that. He wanted to go further. He also wanted to say, he wanted to prove using mathematics that for every statement, either we could prove it or it's negation. So like we will, like every single thing, we will either uh, eventually figure out it or it's negation. And he wanted a method, what he called sort of an algorithm uh, in the modern parlance that would take in a statement and would tell you, does it follow from the axiom? So can we reduce mathematics to a grammar checker? Uh, <laughs> yeah, an algorithmic process. And he really wanted this. He thought it would be amazing if we could sort of systematize all of mathematical thought. Um, and uh, yeah, it didn't work out. He was an uh, ambitious guy, this he guy, was, Hilbert. Yeah, he yeah, was, yeah, he, he went for the stars. <laughs> he sure did. And um, so there's something called the incompleteness theorems of mathematical logic, which dealt a blow to part of what Hilbert wanted to do, actually a big part of what Hilbert wanted to do. But uh, that gets a lot of press and it's a super important result. But uh, the bigger result, I would say, came a couple of years later by Alan Turing, who sort of argued that this last thing was impossible. You can't reduce mathematics to algorithmic thinking. Uh, and in order to do that, again, that's how do you do that? How do you prove such a thing? Well, you have to define what it means for something to be algorithmic or computable. And nobody knew how to do that. People had tried, but it's like, how do you define something that I have this sense of? Um, and Alan Turing did it in the 1930s. Uh, he defined these things that are now called Turing machines. And once you define them, you can reason about them. And so he argued that this third part of Hilbert's program, like reduce mathematics, find a, a program, an algorithm that would like determine whether a mathematical statement follows or doesn't. He said, nope, that's impossible. He literally proved that, that is impossible. Um, and he developed the idea of the modern day computer, a general purpose computer, a machine that could do everything that we can imagine as computable. He defined it. He proved uh, that there is sort of one sort of maximal type of machine, a machine that can interpret all others. He did all of these things decades before like modern day computers existed. So like mathematical logic had a pivotal role in defining computer science and then structuring how uh, like computers as we know them today were built. And it all came out of this sort of idea of, I just want to know this very pure mathematics question. Yeah, there are a lot of different directions we could go, but this is fascinating to me. Um, one, well, first of all, I have a good friend who's a computer scientist. He was a friend of mine. Uh, this was in the nineties. And he was a computer science major. And I said, I'm having a problem with my computer. And he said, I don't know anything about computers. 
<laughs> oh, I don't know anything about computers. Yeah, there, <laughs> there's a standard line here from a famous computer scientist. Uh, I think it was Dijkstra. I, I might be getting it wrong, though. But uh, computer science is as much about computers as astronomy is about telescopes. Yeah. Right? Like, so <laughs> you can be a fantastic astronomer and not know how to like how a telescope you know, all the intricacies of how a telescope works or how to fix it if your telescope has problems. It's the exact same thing. Uh, a computer scientist, there are computer scientists who care very much about the physical manifestations of computers and, the, how, and how to do that stuff. But a lot of computer science is, a computer is a tool to implement this thing that I understand and can reason about. Yeah, yeah, that's yep. right. And then you mentioned earlier in the conversation, um, and this is something I've heard before, but I always find it fascinating. Um, I, I can't even put it in words. Infinite sets of different size. Yeah. See, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And it all comes back to what I said earlier, which is instated in natural language. It's like, what do you mean? Like, and so in order to make sense of that, you have to define what you mean by different size. And okay. Let's takes, do that. That takes some time. So the way I des describe it in sort of a 200 level course is let's pretend you have sort of a pile of nickels and a pile of quarters. And you want to know, do I have the same number of nickels and quarters? So one way is to count, right? Like yeah, count the, the number of nickels. Force method, yeah. Right, count the number of nickels, count the number of quarters, um, which is, might be the first thing you think of. Um, but a better way, probably less error prone, is to take one nickel, take one quarter, pair them off, put them aside. Take one nickel, take one quarter, pair them off, put them aside. And then in this pairing process, do you use up both at the same time? Uh, and so that's a way to understand when two sort of finite collections have the same number of elements. Can I have a buddy system? So like, you know, in elementary school, like you pair off a class with another class, everybody has a buddy. So that, that's a way to understand when two things have the same size. So if we steal that idea and use it to define when two infinite sets have the By same size. analogy. Exactly. <laughs> we, we take the analogy and then we turn it into a literal definition. This is what we mean when we say these two sets have the same size. And I, I want to be really careful. There are other ways to understand the sizes of sets than this way that mathematicians use. This isn't like the on high absolute truth of how to define this. Just like the number of holes in an object, there are actually different ways to define this in mathematics. But this is a good way uh, to, to, uh, to measure the sizes of infinite sets. Can I find a pairing from the objects in this set to the objects in this set so that everybody has one and only one buddy on the other side? And once you take that as a definition, you can reason about it. And then you can argue that, say, I can't pair off the natural numbers, the numbers 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, with the real numbers, the decimals as we think of them. So you can prove this. You can reason about it. And so therefore, in a certain sense, the real numbers, in this sense, in the specific sense. Specific sense, yes. The, the real numbers are bigger than the natural numbers. There you go. That's, yeah, don't think that. That's um, fascinating to me. Absolutely fascinating. So it, it, is, is it, um, one of the things you study is set theory. We've just been talking about it. What is set theory? Um, so set theory is a lot of things. So on, at the most basic level, it's exactly this, taking this idea and running with it. It's, uh, hey, we have this cool new tool to understand um, infinite sets. Let's use it. Let's, let's see if it's useful. And it is. Uh, Cantor didn't stumble across this because he was having fun with infinite sets. Uh, he stumbled into this because he was solving a problem in analysis and about the real numbers. He was like literally trying to understand uh, something related to Fourier series, which a very important thing in physics. He was trying to understand something about it. So this is like interdisciplinarity in mathematics. 
Yeah. So um, got from analysis to, to yeah to set theory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but this is how mathematics works all the time, and um, people think that mathematicians go off and do their own weird things, but we're very motivated by very concrete questions, and then they spin off these whole areas. So, at its most basic level, the uh, set theory starts there. But from a logician's point of view, um, set theory is more than that. It's we can express set theory in this very simple way, uh, and using very simple rules. And so then we could understand sort of all of mathematics in this one world. So within, you can code everything in mathematics as a set. And so you can sort of then study the whole of mathematics, the whole universe of mathematics as one mathematical object in a certain sense. And, and now this gets really weird. Um, so uh, coming back to mathematical logic a little bit, um, when you write down some statements, some axioms, some very basic things, uh, you might only have sort of one object in mind. So like the natural numbers, you can add them and you can multiply them. And they satisfy certain properties that you might remember from high school. Something oh, I do. called the commutative law, the distributive yeah. law, and right, so on. Right, These are the grammar so, rules. Yes. Exactly. So you could say, okay, the natural numbers have an addition, a multiplication, and they satisfy these rules. But there might be other worlds that satisfy those rules as well that you didn't intend unintended interpretations of those things. So historically, this came up in terms of geometry. Uh, Euclid, uh, Euclidean geometry had some basic rules uh, and some basic axioms and basic maneuvers and then proved things from them. And then um, they thought that there was just the natural world of geometry. But then in the 1800s, people developed non-Euclidean geometries, which were ways to interpret these rules that were not intended, but you're stuck, right? If you're only using these rules and you can find a non-Euclidean world where something isn't true. Right, you three space to n space. Yes. So there's that, so, those, those are, those, so there's the Euclidean three space and Euclidean n space, but then there's also sort of the, the surface of the earth is not Euclidean. Um, uh, so um, when you write something down, you might think that you're capturing like something canonical. There's only one universe in which this all makes sense, uh, but you're probably not. Like there's probably other ways. So by analogy, right, you can try to define what a democracy is and you could try your best and you might think you've captured what a democracy is, but then a democracy does something really weird that you didn't anticipate. And it's consistent with all of your rules of what you thought a democracy was, right? And so like that can happen. And then you have to revise how you thought about these things. So so there's, there's set theory these days studies different models of set theory, different interpretations of the basic rules of mathematics that disagree with each other. Uh, and so this leads to mathematical statements that like in one universe of mathematics are true and in a different universe of mathematics are false. Uh, and so th this uh, really gets at the heart of a lot of what's happening in mathematical logic these days is sort of understanding what axioms you need to prove various theorems. Yeah. A lot of this would fall, at least for going back to my discussions with these mathematicians, is the relax relaxation of constraints. So, And this is very important in mathematics. So you begin by saying, okay, geometry is this. It's in three space and that's it. You're done. Well, what if we relax that constraint and then do something else? Right? Then a whole new world, one that doesn't happen to exist, uh, opens up, but you can definitely still have provable statements in that, I guess I would call it imaginary world. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be imaginary. So here's the amazing thing. Um, so you talked about three space and like n-dimensional space. And a lot of people think, well, th this is just nonsense. N-dimensional space doesn't exist, right? Like, And uh, we can argue in the physical world whether it exists or not, but um, 
So when people first started reasoning about three-dimensional space in mathematics, um, they did things and they wanted to generalize to n-dimensional space. And now n-dimensional space is everywhere. Uh, whenever you're crunching data, you have like people and properties. Like a person has a oh, height. Oh yeah, definitely. And, oh yeah. And, oh, I've know, done this myself. An age yes. and a weight. A person right. has many dimensions to them. And so if you want to reason about this, you have to understand n-dimensional space. And so linear algebra, which is you know, uh, two hundred level course here. A lot of a lot of people first think it's not applied at all, but it is the foundation for statistics. It's foundation for uh, machine learning, for artificial intelligence. It is just working with huge data, which are points in a million dimensional space. Now you don't visualize it that way, but the same mathematics applies. And so, if we can generalize and prove something from some slightly weaker uh, constraints. Um, it's fun. Mathematicians just love doing that, but it ends up being incredibly applicable down the line a lot of the time. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know one of the things you read a lot in academic literature is um, about uh, what is the word that is used for it? Intersectionality. You've heard this word, and when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is multiple dimensions. <laughs> That's exactly what this is. And I remembered back from, you know, when I used to do this stuff, like, oh, that's different dimensions and they're additive or what multiplicative, whatever they are. Yeah. But, but there is a kind of formal logic for it. Um, right. And actually getting back to dimension, this gets super interesting as well. So what does dimension mean? Well, we define it in linear algebra, uh, but you can also define it in more complicated ways. So there's a famous thing like the shoreline of England. Like, is that a one-dimensional thing? Because if you zoom in, it gets more and more jagged, right? And so how do you define sort of fractional dimensions or decimal dimensions? And there's a whole, like this is took a while and now there is a definition that we can then reason about. So dimension then itself becomes much more general and uh, you, know, uh, you can apply it to more things. Right, right. And, and I guess the kind of difference between the way that a social scientist or a historian like me would look at this is the formality of it, is that you have... Uh, pretty strict rules about how things have to be defined, presented, and then tested. Yes. We, we don't really have that ability in the social sciences and the humanities. Yes. Yeah, we should a... do our best. <laughs> yeah, but I, again, it's, um, it's, it's weird in that most people think that mathematics is this incredibly hard discipline, which it is. I mean, but it's also in some ways the easiest discipline in that we can get rid of a huge amount of that complexity and totally define what we mean and what the rules are. And that, that strips away a huge amount of, uh, of the ambiguity. Experience. ambiguity period. Yeah. yeah. Right. But, uh, but that gives us the ability to do powerful things as well. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And I also really like what you said about the way in which there's this kind of interdisciplinarity in mathematics that one field will affect another field. I know somebody very well, who uh, essentially, uh, I believe all of her work is to try to, to reduce geometry to algebra. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the whole program. <laughs> I mean, it, well, it's funny because like students now think of geometry, like a point on the plane is given by two numbers, like the X coordinate and the Y coordinate. But it took a very long time in, math, in, in the history of mathematics for those to be connected. Like the algebra of like assigning numbers to points and then manipulating it algebraically to express geometric facts. This took a long time for people to connect because uh, they feel very different. Uh, they don't do a lot of, I didn't to me in high school because that's how I learned it. But uh, like, uh, like, yeah, this sort of cross-fertilization of mathematics is incredibly important. Uh, yeah. 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 It's very, it's all, it's, it's very fascinating. And I wish I wouldn't have taken calculus. I should have gone on to something else and I would really like this because I like this level of abstraction. It's very good. And of course, it's very satisfying to be able to say, oh, I have a proof for that. 
I mean, you're kind of done, you've contributed something, and then you can move on. And obviously, that's going to raise questions, especially if you release the constraints, which you can always do. And then you're exploring new territory, if you believe it's territory and not something we're just making up. Right. <laughs> that goes yep. back to our previous. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's very good. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I find this conversation absolutely fascinating. Um, we have kind of a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on right now? Uh, yeah, so I was chair recently for three years and then the, the, <laughs> and the pandemic and then this book. So it was my, my big goal to finish this book. So I just finished it. Uh, so it's coming out. So uh, I, I haven't been working on other things in the very recent past, but um, so bigger things that I, sort of bigger projects that I'm involved in that I would like to return to soon. Uh, so one is um, linear algebra, the subject that I talked about a little bit ago, which is study of sort of higher dimensional spaces and other things. Um, so at, at Grinnell, we teach it in an interesting way that's pretty different. Um, and there's no book out there that that, that uh, satisfies sort of uh, the, the level of both abstraction and computation that we try to balance in it. So I've written a uh, a mini book for that, 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 that we use at the college. And so I would like to expand that a little bit more. So that's one project on the more continuing in the book angle, but more generally my research project, um, we didn't talk a lot about sort of, uh, computability theory other than the basics, but what computability theory and mathematical logic lets you do is understand the complexity of mathematical objects. So, I can say this object is complicated because no computer could understand it in a certain sense. Or once you have a formal language that mathematical logic provides, you could say any description of this object has to be this complicated. So now we have levels of complexity. Like uh, you can describe this, but you need um, certain types of complicated manipulations in the in the in the, the syntactic thing that describes it. So mathematical logic gives us a stratification of complexity of mathematical objects. And what I like to study is sort of how complicated are certain mathematical objects. So we can prove that, yeah, this object requires this level of sophistication to define, to understand in, in a certain sense. All right, so this would be like a complexity index. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then, so what I like to do is not just sort of have a, you know, a dictionary of this mathematical object is as complicated, that's part of what we do, but it's much more so like take a theorem in mathematics, something that's been proven, um, and if you can, it says maybe every, every object, for every object, there's another object that has a certain property. This is a theorem of mathematics, say, and what people in my line of work like to do is say, okay, maybe you have a very simple object, but the only thing that works with it is incredibly complicated. And we can prove that, that using this sort of complexity index, we can say that, that, that the relationship between the inputs and the outputs is very complicated. We can then infer from that that any proof of this theorem must involve certain techniques, must involve ah. certain non-constructive techniques. Well, that's very helpful. Then you wouldn't have to go to Pierre Deligne. You could just say, okay, I, I have something that has this complexity index. I need these things. Right. And, but, <laughs> like, so, so this goes back to the simplification thing you were talking about earlier. Like, We'd like to take a proof and simplify it as much as we can. But like, logic gives you the tools to argue that any proof of this must involve yeah, there's these a, certain there's a, Yeah, it can't, can't be more simple than this. Right. And so that, that's a... <laughs> Big part of my research program is under, uh, classifying mathematical theorems in this way of saying, yeah, this is a theorem, but any proof must involve non-constructive techniques, non-computable techniques, or other things. So is this, a, I, we're, we're, uh, we got to stop soon, but I'm really interested. So is this a continuous variable, or are you going to end up with a typology of proofs? Or of so, um, there's, so it's good. Uh, <laughs> 
Let's go on for a long time. So this is changing now. There used to be a, a belief that uh, there are only a small number of sort of complexity classes of theorems, and that is being challenged. Has been challenged very. Uh, vigorously over the last uh, 20 <laughs> years. Uh, and so now there's a huge zoo. It's, it's sometimes called the reverse math zoo uh, of sort of understanding the complexity of these things. And they happen at different levels. And so uh, it is incredibly rich and complicated. Yeah, so we don't know. Anyway, this has been fascinating. Um, Joe, thank you very much for being on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. It's okay. been really fun. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.